Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex. I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford computer science PhD and a Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and innovation. My name is Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and consulting. Our guest today is Dr. David Fagenbaum, who is an assistant professor of medicine in translational medicine and human genetics at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the founding director of the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory, CSTL. David is also the co-founder president of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, CDCN. Before co-founding the CDCN, David co-founded and led the Actively Moving Forward Support Network, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting grieving college students. David is the national best-selling author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. The book describes David's journey to spearhead the search for a cure for his disease and is harrowing and hopeful at the same time. It is a must read for everyone. David is also a highly regarded clinical researcher, having published in the New England Journal of Medicine and other prestigious journals. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So David, reading about your story can be obviously very heartbreaking at times, but endlessly inspiring. I've told you before about how emotional I personally got reading about your beautiful bond between you and your family, and especially during the many inpatient stays and admissions that you had in the hospital. But there's obviously so much more to your life. You're an extremely accomplished researcher, writer, as well as a patient advocate. So for our audience members who may be a little bit unfamiliar with your story, can you tell us a little bit more about your early life and how you got into clinical medicine and then your eventual transition off the traditional path of a clinician? Sure. So I uh, grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. My parents were from the small island of Trinidad in the Caribbean. And I grew up in Raleigh where I had dreamed of playing college football. American football was uh, kind of my passion as as I was growing up. And um, I, I was singularly focused on this. I loved exercise and training to get towards this goal. And I had the opportunity to go to Georgetown um, to play football just a couple of weeks after I got there. My life was just turned upside down when my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer. Uh, her diagnosis just changed everything about my life. It broke my heart um, because I was so close with my mom. And it also inspired me to want to go into medicine uh, to help patients like my mom. So started out being all about playing college football. And then all of a sudden, that became a very low priority um, when I got to Georgetown. And for me, it became all about getting involved in, in pre-med and then also starting an organization in memory of my mom. My mom's name was Anne-Marie Fagenbaum. And uh, I told her I would start an organization in her memory for grieving college students. And I would call it AMF, uh, her initials, um, which soon became actively moving forward. And, and that became my life's mission is to support um, grieving college students or AMF and to become uh, a physician one day like um, I promised my mom. And then um, my life kind of turned upside down one more time when I was a third-year medical student. And out of nowhere, I became critically ill myself. I was totally healthy and had this dream of treating patients in memory of my mom when out of nowhere, um, I was hospitalized and uh, even had my last rites read to me because the doctors didn't think I would survive. Wow. That's uh, such a harrowing story. And just 
reading your book, which I actually finished just a couple of months ago, was just, again, so inspirational for us. And everyone in the class, actually, the class you attended uh, read that book. And I know I speak for everyone when uh, we say it was one of the best books we've ever read. Oh, thank um, you. you mentioned uh, AMF, and I wanted to talk about actively moving forward. Like you said, you started it to support sort of grieving college students at Georgetown. First question I had is sort of what made you take a leap from grieving son to an advocate for all grieving students? I know you mentioned that it was somewhat of a promise that you made to your yep. mom. And if you can tell us a little bit about what sort of skills that you learned while managing AMF that maybe you were able to leverage down the line when you were off the beaten path. Yeah, it's a really important question. For me, I think that um, my mom was such a, a helper to so many people around her. She thrived in helping other people. And um, and that was just who she was. That kind of It's an embodiment of her to help other people. And so and when I wanted to do something in her memory and I made this promise to her, um, I really can't, even now, 17 years later, I really can't think of a better way to honor my mom than to actually go beyond myself and to try to create something that could help other people. I mean, that's like the ultimate reincarnation of my mom. And so for me, it was uh, to continue her legacy. She was this incredible person. I wanted her her legacy and the way that she lived to be continued and I mean, it's amazing. Here we are 17 years later. I'm no longer involved with AMF, but AMF is supporting grieving college students all over the country. And no one even knows that my mom's, and you know, my mom is the uh, inspiration, or I'm sure some people do, but the vast majority of think, people think AMF is actively moving forward and it's, you know, helping these grieving college students and grieving young adults. Um, but this is my mom's legacy. This is what she did when she was alive. It's now what continues in, since she's gone. And just as you said, that became my my life's focus while I was finishing up undergrad, and then I went to grad school in England and, and started up medical school. And AMF was what I did when I was not um, taking classes. And then, of course, I became critically ill with Castleman disease. And as you know, um, a couple years into my Castleman disease battle, I started an organization to try to take on Castleman's. And a lot of um, the things I learned from that experience building AMF um, really became very important. Um, I think the few things, if I were to really boil it down. Um, first off, I learned how important it is to come up with a central vision that other people can get behind. You have to you have to have a, a clear vision for what you're trying to work towards. And then secondly, the reason it's so important to have that clear vision is because that is how you will get, that's how you'll build a team. Um, as, as you know, my book is called Chasing My Cure, but but the my in Chasing My Cure is, a, is, is probably a bit of a misnomer. It should be our because it was not me and it is not me chasing my cure. It's actually a big team of people working together. And that's that's why I'm alive today. Not because I chased my cure. I'm alive today because I was able to to connect with a, a, an incredible team of people that chased our cure together. Come up with a, a very clear mission or vision for the future. Um, assemble a team around that vision. Um, and then this concept of, of turning hope into action, making sure that if you're hoping for a certain thing that you get busy doing today um, and that it's not just about theoretically what you're trying to do, but it's about action. It's about work. Um, and so I think that it's it's those three things which were essential for AMF. Um, and all of a sudden, when I was critically ill with Castleman disease and I was out of options, and a, a friend of mine told me, he said, you know, David, you need to focus on Castleman's. I was terrified by the concept and I was really overwhelmed and intimidated by the idea of trying to make progress for a disease that's been around or been described for 60 years but had very little progress um, but because I had the 10 years of growing AMF under my belt, I was 
slightly less intimidated than I would have been otherwise and slightly more prepared to um, to try to take on this this big problem. Wow, there's so much there, David. I, I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned earlier on in your answer, which is a lot of folks don't even know that AMF may have been inspired by your mother. And, and I actually, I think about that concept sometimes. You know, you and your mother through AMF have touched so many lives to this day that for individual people, it may not be traced back to you or your mother, but that's sort of the power of, of starting something. Even if you leave, that's the power of starting something. And one of our previous guests that we spoke with, who's a partner at Deloitte right now, Dr. Felix Matthews, he talked about how when 20, 30 years ago, when he created a small, uh, you know, when he was a medical student at during nights, he would code certain software for the local hospital. And that software is still being used to this day wow. and, and impacting hundreds of thousands of patients in the last 20, 30 years in that hospital. It's just very, and he doesn't even do that anymore. It's just very meaningful that something you've done so long ago is still affecting so many people in such a positive way. So, so I absolutely love that. Uh, Thank you. Talk a little bit. You mentioned sort of your diagnosis with idiopathic multicentric Castleman's disease. I think it was back in 2010. And you spent most of your training years battling this disease. I was curious how your view of medical research as well as clinical medicine changed during this time as you navigated the healthcare system, both as a healthcare professional as well as as a patient. For me, I think the biggest um, shift was before I became ill, I had a belief that in medicine, we had solutions for everything. And if we didn't have a solution, that there was a team of collaborators working diligently to find that solution. And that um, it was just a matter of effort and time before we solved all problems. That really was this sort of idealistic, a bit naive or, or very naive sort of worldview. I think it's something that we all want to believe, right? And, and sometimes um, that sort of naive belief that there's answers to everything, I think is sometimes supported or substantiated by the idea that if you go to Google and you start typing in a question you have, any question you start typing in, Google will tell you the rest of your question. You're like, oh, I guess this isn't a very unique question. I guess a lot of other people have thought about it already. And we get this sense that like, there's answers to everything. No matter what you could ever imagine Googling, you're going to have an answer for, at least it feels that way. I mean, in medicine, it also feels that way. Um, when you're in medical school, you learn things that are known about diseases. You don't learn things that are not known about diseases because you can't teach something that we don't know. And so you're biased towards learning about the diseases and the things we do know, and you don't learn about all the diseases and things we don't know. And then all of a sudden, I became this patient with this rare disease called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. Idiopathic means we don't know the cause. And there are many diseases like Castleman's where we don't have a clue why out of nowhere my body tries to kill itself. I mean, it's literally my immune system attacking my vital organs and it would kill me if not for chemotherapies, for poisons to destroy the immune system. And so it made me realize that there are a lot of diseases, particularly rare diseases, where we don't know how they work. And unfortunately, over 95% of rare diseases do not have a single FDA approved therapy. There's nothing for the vast, vast majority of those, the 95% of rare diseases, which is close to 7,000 diseases, there isn't even a drug that's being tried or tested or in development. And so you realize that, oh my gosh, we've made a lot of progress as a medical system, but we've still got a long way to go. I agree with obviously everything you said, uh, David. And as you were saying your answer, I was thinking about 
a specific part of in your book where you describe a pretty cool and innovative way that you conducted research. And I think it was in relation to CDCN, where instead of individual researchers applying with a particular idea and you giving them a grant, you like separated the ideation process from the operator, right? And you crowdsource very meaningful, high-level problems that needed to be worked on. And then you found individual people that could work on that problem. I just found that that was an aha moment for me when I read your book. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that thought process came to be? Because I think that way of thinking could be applied to so many different things, even in the business world. Sure. So you're exactly right that, I mean, for me, when I first was trying to understand how does research happen, I was a third year medical student, but I really didn't understand the intricacies of research. I was really surprised by the way that research is done. And as, as you articulated, basically, if you are a rare disease research foundation, or you are some sort of disease organization that wants to fund research, just as you said, you put out what's called a request for proposals, and you invite researchers to come up with the best ideas they can, and then they submit those ideas to you. You put together an expert panel, and you pick the best idea, and you give them money. And then they go and do the work, and then six months later, or a year later, you do the process over again. For me, there were a lot of problems with that, and there still are a lot of problems with that. First off, if you only have a few people applying for a grant or applying in general... Um, let's say you get three applicants, what is the likelihood that one of those three people is going to apply for the best possible research idea? Because the only people that can apply for funding are people that can also do the funding. And so what's the likelihood that one of those three people is going to have the best idea in the world and also be the most qualified person in the world to actually do the work? It's next to zero. When you're the NIH and you get tens of thousands of applications a year, and you have tens of billions of dollars to distribute, this process works pretty well. Because when you get tens of thousands of applications, it's actually pretty likely that some of those applications are actually going to be the best ideas by the best people in the world, and you have the resources to make them happen. But when the numbers shrink down to just a few, it becomes really unlikely. And so as a result, you can fund all the research you want, but your dollars are very unlikely to get as far as they possibly could get if you took a different approach. And so just as you said, our approach was to say, let's not just ask people to apply for funding. Let's ask everyone in the field. Let's ask dozens and dozens of people what research questions are important to patients, whether or not they have a lab that they can actually do the work and just what are the questions and then once, as you said, once we figured out what are all the questions, we prioritized them down and said, okay, well, who's the best person in the world to do this? Who's the best person to do that? And then we did the due diligence to figure out who it was. And we went to them and we said, we'll give you money. We'll give you samples. Will you do this work? And it turned out to be a really successful approach because I'm also a researcher and I can tell you, I much prefer to do research than to write grants about doing research. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this idea that we could go to the best researchers and say, here are the money, here are the samples. Let's do some good science together. Yeah, and I think the underlying insight there is just so beautiful, which is that, as I mentioned, you can the way to maximize ideation and execution is, is by separating the two processes and, and just not relying on the fact that one person can do both of those things incredibly yes. well. And that's such a simple but beautiful insight that I think I was quite shocked by when I read your book. So I hope more people pick up on that. You mentioned your research, so let's turn towards that. You've obviously led many translational research studies, including a clinical trial on sirolimus, the very drug that was saving your life. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about sort of the progress of that clinical trial and in general, the state of research in Castleman's disease right now? 
Sure. So when we started out taking on Castleman disease back in um, 2012, there were a number of things we had to accomplish in order to get to where we are today. Um, first off, we had to create the infrastructure necessary to do research. So we needed to build a registry. We needed to build a biobank so we had samples and data to work off of. Secondly, and in parallel, we needed to better define what is the disease. So we needed to establish diagnostic criteria. We needed to establish clinically meaningful subtypes so that we all were using the same language when we were talking about the disease, all talking about the same disease when we mentioned a particular subtype. Um, those were very, very fundamental. The next step, and, and these first few happened very much in parallel, was we needed to build a community of physicians, researchers, and patients so we could do the crowdsourcing that I just mentioned. Um, so when you have um, the samples, the data, the community for crowdsourcing, and uh, an ontology or terminology system that we could all use and agree upon, then all of a sudden you have the fundamental ingredients needed to do this really important crowdsourcing effort that I described uh, to build this international research agenda. So then we started crowdsourcing. We prioritized those studies and we started funding the most important research questions. Uh, a lot of those studies came back with insights into disease biology about Castleman disease. Um, and many labs took on um, some of those uh, early signals and we were making progress. And then, as you mentioned, serolimus, in the midst of this progress, I relapsed and I nearly died for the fifth time. And I realized that despite all the science that we were progressing for the field, none of those uh, breakthroughs or none of the progress we'd made was going to have a meaningful impact on my life. And that's when um, I shifted a lot of attention for several weeks to studying my own samples and biospecimens and to try to find a susceptibility. I wanted to understand, is there something about my immune system as to why it's turning on and going crazy that maybe could be amenable to a drug that's already FDA approved that could actually inhibit that thing? And eventually identified the mTOR signaling pathways being highly activated and thankfully, there's a drug that's been around for 30 years that can inhibit it really well, serolimus. So I started taking it. Um, and just as you mentioned, um, it's now been, I think I just looked today, it's 91.16 months um, that I've been on this drug. And I say it that way because I know that I can't round up. I don't know if this drug's going to work and keep me in remission for 92 months. But I also am so thankful for every fraction of a month. that It's not just been 91 months, right? And so uh, importantly, in, in this drug helping me, my lab has gone on to do a lot more research into this particular communication line and to better understand the role that it plays in Castleman's and other inflammatory disorders. And just as you mentioned, also launched a clinical trial, um, which is progressing really, really well. Uh, it, when we do research in my lab, and it's now a center called the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory, we refer to ourselves affectionately as the CASEL, um, which is what that uh, acronym stands for. In the CASEL, we think about our research in terms of getting really high quality biospecimens from patients, getting extensive clinical data on each of those samples. We get to thousands of pages of medical records tied to every single specimen. We think about doing these really broad uh, omic discovery studies like single cell RNA sequencing and serum proteomics, using this discovery level work to identify hypotheses, following those hypotheses in the lab, and then importantly, when something looks like it might have a meaningful impact on patients with a drug that's already FDA approved, then we publish our data and oftentimes doctors out of options for what to do with patients will actually prescribe those drugs in what's called off-label drug use, where they actually prescribe the drug even though the drug is not approved for Castleman disease. And then we have a database where we systematically track whether drugs work or don't work. 
and the ones that look like they're working, we move forward to clinical trials. And in parallel, when patients are in clinical trials, we get a lot of blood samples on them so we can understand in the people who get better, why they got better, and the people who don't get better, why didn't they get better? And we feed that all back into the machine that we push forward to better um, refine treatment for this disease. And so this process is, is often referred to as translational research, where you're doing everything from bench research all the way through clinical trials and back. We've really made a lot of progress for Castleman disease. So when COVID emerged a year and a half ago, we decided to apply the same approach to, to COVID-19. That's fascinating, David. You've really set up a robust ecosystem or a value chain where every step of the process is really well uh, documented and every step is very data-oriented. You have the hypotheses and when you find maybe a repurposing target, you take that and then you actually follow patients along the way. I, I think that level of engineering, if I can use that word, it, yep. it must be incredibly difficult to do and, and challenging to do, especially in a very fragmented healthcare system where data is all over the place. So how did you sort of circle that square and how were you able to do that? Yeah, it is really challenging. And, you know, as I talk here and, and I probably summarized, you know, I summarized nine years of work and, you know, maybe 25 seconds, right? Um, and, and of course it, it was, it has been challenging to get the natural history study in place, to be able to get this data. I mean, it was two years to get that project off the ground, to have the biospecimens where we have this biobank where we can enroll patients from around the world. Um, they can, if they're, you're in the US, you can just walk to your nearby um, laboratory and you can actually get the blood drawn there and sent to us. And so th these sorts of infrastructure steps were things that took months and months, in some cases, years to get in place but they're so critical. And I mean, that's why when you ask, what's the state of research, I don't dive right into mTOR and IL-6 and JAK-STAT. I start with, well, we wouldn't know any of these things if we didn't build the infrastructure. And so, and no one wants to spend time or money on infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. If anyone had told me how long it was actually going to take for us to build the infrastructure, I don't know if I even would have wanted to spend all the time on infrastructure. In hindsight, I'm really happy I did. But at the time, I mean, I wanted solutions, answers, data now but I knew that we needed to build infrastructure, but I, I naively thought that we were going to build it, you know, in a couple of months when really it, it took a few years. But that infrastructure is so critical um, to be able to make the progress we're making today. Thank you, David. And so inspirational. And you're doing such valuable, valuable work. Really appreciate you chatting with us. I'm going to send it over to my colleague, Alex, who has a few questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Shad. And David, it's been amazing uh, listening to your, your story and insights. And I think one of the aspects that really stood out is around the fact that when studying medicine, we're usually taught from textbooks and we tend to think that knowledge is constant, but actually knowledge is evolving and there's mm -hmm. so much that we don't know. And I think this reminds me of something that Bill Gates said, which is basically if he was starting his career in this century, he'd be hacking biology rather than hacking computers. Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting. And I think there are so many kind of unaddressed problems in healthcare, and there are so many aspects of our health and our body that we don't understand. I've had the opportunity to be involved in a, a project to explore the respiratory microbiome. Like we were building a startup around it. It got into Y Combinator. So wow. like basically when I started medical school, I've never heard of the respiratory microbiome. And during the last years, we've made these discoveries that actually like the microbiome signature of the patient can tell us a lot about their respiratory health. So we can use the, wow. we, we can use the bacteria for therapeutic purposes. So there's just so much to uncover there. And I think just linking back to what you've done and the infrastructure that you've built, it really feels to me as an integrated 
drug development and discovery infrastructure. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting companies that I was looking at is Valo Health, and they're mm. trying basically to link kind of target discovery with therapeutic design, with clinical development. I guess this brings me to my question, which is around repurposing drugs. So I know this is a topic of significant interest. So I was wondering your thoughts on whether the pharma industry has paid enough attention to repurposing, to the repurposing of drugs, and your thoughts about some areas of skepticism that may exist around there, and whether the increasing trend of real-world evidence and kind of interconnected steps of drug development would change how we look at uh, repurposing drugs. This is such an important question. Um, No, I, I do not believe that the biopharmaceutical industry has paid enough attention to all of the potential uses of every drug that's approved. When you think about what humankind has achieved in the last couple centuries, it's just incredible. I mean, there are over 2,500 drugs that have been approved by the FDA that can do thousands uh, of different things. They have mechanisms that are just incredible that we as humans have been able to tease out. And those 2,500 drugs are approved for about 3,000 human diseases. We today know that there are somewhere around 10,000 human diseases. And so when we, as you mentioned in the textbooks, you know, when you read a textbook about something causes something, or we know this about that, um, it usually doesn't tell you when that discovery happened. So as long as it happened, you know, earlier than today, it seems like it's, you know, written history and it's been established, but so much has just been established even in the last, you know, few years or certainly the last few decades. And so drugs that were developed, let's say 40 years ago and approved 40 years ago um, for a particular condition Back then, uh, the pharmaceutical company who developed the drug may not have had the techniques to understand the microbiome of the respiratory tract, for example, or or whatever it may be, or or probe the immune system to understand that the drug that they just got approved and developed for this disease might actually be helpful for another disease. The tools didn't exist. And so my first answer to your question is no, not enough attention has been paid by the biopharmaceutical industry, but I don't think it's their fault. I think that the reason that not enough attention has been paid is that a lot of the diseases that are potentially susceptible to existing drugs, um, we didn't know that they would be susceptible when the drugs were developed. And frankly, once the drug became generic, which is typically somewhere around a decade or so after that drug's developed, by that stage, the company has no financial interest um, because the drug is now generic. And they, they actually can't afford to do clinical trials once the drug is generic to prove that it's effective for another disease because they're never going to make any money off of it. And, and these are for-profit companies, so they can't do that. And so the situation we're in is that we've got 2,500 drugs. They're approved for 3,000 diseases. Yet many of those 2,500 drugs are also effective for many of the 7,000 diseases that don't have anything approved for them. But which ones, I can't tell you because we don't know. It's not this massive secret where academics or pharmaceutical companies know about these new uses for old drugs. The problem is is that we don't know yet. And so we've got to do the work. And so it's both a problem, but I think it's actually a really exciting opportunity in medicine that we've got all these compounds that we know are safe. We know how they work. We just don't know all of the different diseases they could be helpful. And unfortunately, the big hurdle and roadblock is there aren't incentives to figure this out. There are no incentives to take a drug that's already generic and to figure out a new use for it. Serolimus is saving my life and many other patients with Castleman disease, and no one will ever make any money off of that discovery at all. I have a beautiful two-year-old daughter, an amazing wife. I get to reap the benefits of life, but there is no financial gain for a discovery like that. 
However, um, there are some ways around this, and that's you can tweak the molecule in some way, you can change it in some way, you can change the mode of administration. In this case, it's a pill, so but in, if it was an IV, maybe you could make it reformulated to be an oral medication. There are things you can do, but as of right now, I think we've got to create a really central effort, whether it's through the government or through an institution, but to figure out let's, as humankind, say we want to utilize every drug we've discovered as humankind for every disease that it could be helpful for. David, this is so inspiring. And I think just with the emergence of all this data that we're able to collect now and how we're connecting different data silos and the healthcare system, I imagine that maybe we're getting a step there and maybe the emergence of AI and different analytic techniques would help us advance that. And I definitely see the potential. And I guess one of the projects of interest, and you've mentioned that, which is around basically Project Corona, creating a database of all the medications that have been used for COVID. So I'm really interested to know basically how that project came about and what was your thinking and purpose behind it. So you you may remember that Friday the 13th of March uh, of 2010 was the day that the United States really shut down and many parts of the world shut down on that particular Friday the 13th. And I found myself that night, I was in in the car, my my wife was um, next to me and it was about 10 p.m. and I was listening to the radio and hearing about this awful pandemic and hearing more about how drugs were being used in some parts of the world for COVID. Um, And there was a sense that maybe there was a cytokine storm involved, so excessive inflammation in some patients. And I found myself for a moment really hoping that some research group somewhere would follow what we did and, you know, read about the work we've done for Castleman disease, would kind of follow our blueprint, but for COVID. And I thought to myself, you know, I really wish there was like a a cytokine storm center or lab that could refocus their effort on COVID and do what we did. And then about a minute later, I was like, wait a minute, why am I hoping for someone else somewhere to like do what we did, but for COVID, you know, I, I know the director, it's me, you know, we can just, we can just do it and we should do it. And of course, you know, our, our team was set up to do other work. And so we had to do a lot of repurposing of our team and and the tools we had at hand, but we felt that it was the right thing to do, but it really was only supposed to be a 10-day push. Uh, And it was going to be in 10 days, we were going to go through 2,000 published uh, reports, and we were going to extract out all data on every drug that had been reported to be given to a COVID patient. We extracted data on 9,152 patients in the first two months of the pandemic, and we were blown away. There were 115 different drugs used in the first 9,000 patients. 115 drugs were tried. I mean, doctors and researchers were trying anything and everything and still are, right? But it just was so shocking. This was before hydroxychloroquine and many other drugs had made the news as being um, potentially promising as repurposing approaches. But we were already just blown away. Oh my gosh, over 100 drugs have been tried. And then we said, okay, well, maybe we should extend this 10-day effort a little bit longer. And maybe we should keep tracking these things, making the data available. And then with the kind of explosion of misinformation around some drugs being effective when they really didn't seem to be, and other drugs no one any ever heard about, even though they were effective, um, we felt it was really critical to provide this public good, which is a central repository of all data on all drugs being used. Amazingly, now there are over 500 drugs that we found to be given to humans with COVID. This is amazing. I told you earlier, 2,500 drugs have been approved by the FDA ever right? 2,500 ever. We're talking one-fifth of that, that number has been given to humans with COVID in the last year. I mean, that is just a year and a half. Just amazing. So when there's this much information, this much data, 
and the stakes are this high, you can't afford to just hope that some research group is going to be aware of the fact that one drug seemed to work and another one didn't seem to work. And so the Corona Project has, we started it out with the goal of being available to physicians and to patients so they could get data-driven insights around what drugs are effective and which drugs aren't. What it has morphed into, we still do that, and anyone can access it at cdcnorg slash corona, but what it's morphed into is that right now it is the engine that the NIH and other organizations use when trying to determine what drugs look most promising that we should then include in the next clinical trial. And that's become the real power of it is to say, this is data on all of the drugs being used. Let's look at the most promising ones and make sure we do a really large trial to prove that those drugs actually work. David, this is fascinating. And I just imagine how scalable this can be and how applicable it can be to future pandemics, for example, because we simply don't know, and hopefully this will not happen, but we simply don't know when a future pandemic would happen. And I think having such project is so important. And basically part of my work around the PhD is building rapidly scalable AI models to kind of help manage patients with respiratory pan, uh, with wow. respiratory illnesses in hospitals. So David, just l- listening to your story and initiatives, it seems that you have a very well established and systematic methodology to building up these projects. You mentioned the importance of having a vision to unify the team of moving forward. You mentioned the importance of breaking down really large problems into manageable chunks. So this links into my question around basically the MBA. So many medical doctors who've went outside the traditional clinical path have done an MBA. And certainly the MBA can teach a lot of really important skills around basically how to manage people, how to manage teams, how to manage projects and solve difficult problems. So I was wondering your thoughts, given that you have an MBA from Penn, on how helpful your MBA has been across the different projects that you've done. Yeah, I I found it to be so helpful. When I first decided to do it, I did it because I noticed that the biggest challenges and hurdles in the way of progress for Castleman disease weren't about whether the scientific technology existed or whether the drugs had been developed. It was actually about how do you harness the resources to be able to leverage the scientific information to find the drugs. And it was all about managing and coordinating and organizing and utilizing. And these are things that you learn in medical school or in graduate school. And so it it felt to me that the right thing to do would be to do an MBA. What I didn't realize, um, to your point, is that the MBA was so much more than just how do you manage or coordinate or leverage. Uh, There was a lot in there around innovation and how do you create the sort of pipeline to have the greatest likelihood of success and innovation? You know, how can you kind of operationalize innovation, which is what we're trying to do with our crowdsourcing effort. Um, there was a lot around negotiations and realizing that, you know, one of our biggest challenges we face is getting our hands on on samples. So lymph nodes, blood, um, bone marrow from Castleman's patients. And there's a lot of effort that needs to go into to working with hospital systems for them to basically unlock their freezers and make those samples available, which at the end of the day comes down to a really clear negotiation and, and so there were a lot of pieces to it that I don't think I even appreciated were going to be so valuable. I think about my managerial economics course where you know, I learned about game theory and things that you would say, well, how does that relate to medicine and science? But but there are just these really clear connections that, that I think about every day um, that, you know, science is pure and it is about, you know, making connections and correlations and, and identifying causation But in order to take that meaningful, pure thing that you just discovered, that pearl, and to turn it into something that can actually help people, 
that's where this organizational managerial um, aspect really comes to play um, because scientific discovery without the ability to integrate that and to utilize it um, is just not enough on its own. Thank you so much, David, for sharing this insight. I guess my last question in the interest of time, how can our listeners learn more about you and follow the work that you do? Well, first off, it's been so wonderful to be a part of this. I think I think the three of us could probably chat for another hour. Um, but so, <laughs> but you know, for all listeners, um, I think that um, the few places that I'd send them, the first is that they can go to cdcn.org to learn about the Calcium Disease Collaborative Network. They can also go to cdcn.org slash corona to learn about our corona project and to access this incredible database our team's been building. And they can check out Chasing My Cure. Uh, this is the, the book I wrote about my journey. I, I poured my heart into it and I poured all the lessons I could into it because frankly, when I was writing it, I didn't know if I would be here on publication date. I didn't know if this drug is going to keep working for me and I don't know what tomorrow holds. But for me, it was my attempt to share everything, all the lessons. I'm a different person today than I was before I got sick. And I wanted to share these lessons so other people didn't have to go through and don't have to go through all that I did to learn them. And and the book's available everywhere books are sold. So your favorite local bookstore, Amazon. And it's been so special for me to be able to see the, the reach that it's had and to be able to hear from readers uh, like the two of you about the kind of impact it's made. Yeah, and absolutely. I just wanted to say, David, before you go, that after I finished the book, I've been pressuring my partner to read it. She's going through another book right now. And as, she, as soon as she's done that, I'm going to make sure she reads the book. So th- those are the little that comes back to what we were talking about before, sort of the influence and the impact that you've had on so many people, not only just us here, but people all around the world, uh, probably in countries that I haven't even heard of. I think that's just the most beautiful thing in the world. So thank you so much for being here. And and thank you so much for writing that book and for everything that you do. Well, thanks for helping to um, elevate um, this journey and the lessons that we've learned and helping to spread the word about our Castleman's work and COVID work. So great to spend time with you guys today. Perfect. Thank you so much, David. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Chad, that was such a fascinating conversation with David. His book is truly fascinating, and you can learn more about Chasing My Cure at chasingmycure.com. Be sure to give it a read. One of the really interesting conclusions that David talked about is around transforming a vision into action. And I think that is very applicable to us because I think wanting something or having a vision for something is not enough. And I think that's very applicable in the context of physicians who are seeking to pursue a career outside the uh, traditional path, because usually pursuing an untraditional path is very intimidating. And it can feel at many times as a problem too big to be solved. And I think one of the insights that David talked about is around the importance of breaking this vision or breaking this big problem into smaller chunks that can be easily managed. And I think the kind of the underlying maybe general idea or abstraction there is that there is nothing that is impossible. However, to achieve something that is very difficult, we need to ask the right question of what are the steps that we need to take to get there and be very methodical and committed to doing those steps. I think for me, that insight was very powerful. And I think it's very applicable to medical doctors who want to to pursue career opportunities outside the traditional path, which can be intimidating. And it's also applicable to, I mean, from my own experience, for example, moving from Syria to Oxford to Harvard Business School, 
So I think that's one of the insights that I want to bring home. Over to you, Shad. Yeah, Alex, I completely agree. And sort of sticking with your theme of, of turning hope of doing something into action, there's often a mental barrier that David talked about. He didn't use the exact words of mental barrier, but he sort of touched on it, that everything important that has to be done, people tend to think that it's already been done. So he talked about this in the context of investigating cytokine storm during the pandemic. He was working on cytokine storm and Castleman's disease, and he realized that was important in the pathophysiology of COVID. And he was hoping that someone was working on it, but he realized that he was well positioned to to actually start working on it. And and look how far he's come uh, in that particular uh, work stream that he's done. He also talked about that when he was diagnosed with Castleman's disease, he sort of just assumed that all the important work that had to be done in Castleman's disease was either being done actively or had been done. And then he realized that it wasn't true and that he actually started working on it. And so I think this is a generalizable insight for our audience members, which is that don't assume that all important work or all meaningful work or all work that's going to bring us forward and bring healthcare forward is currently being worked on or is even being worked on by the right team or has ever been even thought of, suspend disbelief for a little while, because sometimes it might be unbelievable that this is such an important problem that no one's actually working on it. So I think that frees us up to find important problems and leverage our knowledge, our skills, and our network to actually going ahead and solving that problem ourselves. No problem is too big for you to actually put your mind to and solve. And that's something I want to bring home to our audience members. So again, it was such an enjoyable episode. Join us next episode in which we have many more interesting stories of medical doctors who have achieved success in different walks of life outside of the traditional clinical and research career path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can always email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next time.